بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم رب شح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي أما بعد الحمد لله السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Alhamdulillah, it seems like it's been a while because of our slightly adjusted schedule for the last few classes. And now we're back to our normal schedule. And I want to simply do a brief review covering, mentioning what we covered starting from page 61. As I mentioned before, this book is not what we would call uh, kitab dirasi, or a textbook that is used for formal study. It's a book that is used for, for benefiting, for inspiration, but it's not a formal textbook. So it flows in a very particular way. And we began this chapter that started on page 61 some time ago. And the title of this chapter is the ethereal realities in the physical attributes of the Prophet And the word ethereal, just think of ruhaniya. So if you translated that title into Arabic, sometimes doing that makes it even clearer. You would say that al-haqa'iq al-ruhiyya fi al-shama'il al-mustafawiyya, something like that, a nice rhyming title. Basically, the author is drawing a connection between the shama'il, as in the physical features of Rasulullah and certain spiritual realities connected to them. And those spiritual realities are basically khasais. They are unique things Allah gave to the Prophet that uh, indicate his rank and his nobility. And one of the beautiful things about studying the Shama'il and the Khasa'is is that it, its study affirms Tawheed. The study of the person of the Prophet ﷺ, his Shama'il, his Khasa'is, his unique qualities, these things affirm Tawheed because as you study them, you're studying them as things that Allah gave him, right? These are not things independently acquired. These are all things bestowed because everything about the Prophet ﷺ in his shama'il, his khasais, they're all wahbi, they're all bestowed by Allah Ta'ala. So the study of this is the study of what Allah gave him. So we are affirming these are from the mawahib or the divine gifts given to him. Uh, one of the famous books that combines between seerah and shama'il and khasais, one of the famous books is the work of Imam al-Qastalani titled Al-Mawahib al-Laduniya. So he uses that word from uh, mawahib from wahab, you know, the divine bestowals. Uh, what Allah gave His Beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So page 61 begins this chapter on the ethereal realities in the physical attributes of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So after talking about how the Prophets are leaders of mankind in the hierarchy of human beings, they stand at the top. He then talks about the characteristics of the Prophets in plural and how they are distinct from other human beings. After that, he goes into certain specific aspects of the Shama'il and how those physical qualities point to certain meanings. So the height of the Prophet ﷺ. We talked about the uniqueness of the blessed face of the Prophet ﷺ. We talked about the eyes and the eyesight of the Prophet ﷺ and the uniqueness in that, followed by the hearing 
and then the arms, and I believe we, well, no, we kept going. We talked about the touch, the uniqueness of the touch of the Prophet wasallam, and how that touch was a means of removing illness. It was a, a means of instilling yaqeen into the hearts of people. It was the means, the sabab, by which Allah Ta'ala gave certainty to people and healing to people. Because everything is from Allah. And we read those narrations. And then we discussed the issue of the shadow, the shadow of the Prophet And we spoke a bit about those narrations and how from the isnad standpoint, meaning the chains of transmission, those hadith would be classified as da'if or weak. But not everything that is da'if from the isnad perspective uh, is necessarily false. And there's perhaps other proofs to indicate those meanings. And regardless of whether one affirms those narrations or not, one is to do so with adab in all cases. And in, I believe in our last class, we talked about the narration concerning the noble blood of the Prophet ﷺ and the blessed perspiration. I think that's where we left off, the perspiration. So we're on page 79. And we're at the bottom of this page where the author talks now about the saliva. Does anyone know what the word for saliva is in Arabic? Saliva. The word in Arabic for saliva is riq. Riq. Yeah. So riq is the word. Or that. Yeah. Lu'ab or riq. So he says here, everything that came from his presence was a cure for anyone who took it at that moment and in that state. If it was saliva, then it was a cure for every illness. So you have to understand, this is the saliva. Everything that is a part of the Prophet wasallam is tahir. It's pure. And it has barakah. And with Allah's permission, it has the means of healing. And you understand the saliva is produced in the mouth and it facilitates speech. It facilitates swallowing. And this is the mouth, the very first mouth to recite the Quran and Kareem. And we have a hadith in Bukhari in his Sahih where the Prophet taught us a type of ruqya. You know, ruqya when someone is sick or injured, and there's different ways you can do it. But in one narration, the Prophet took his blessed finger, touched his tongue, had saliva on it, placed it on the earth had a little dust on it, placed it on the affected area of the person, and he made a dua. And that dua, he said, Bismillahi turbatu ardina biriqati ba'dina yushfa saqimuna bi'idhni rabbina. This was the dua where he would say, in the name of Allah, this is some turba, some soil from our earth, because that was on his finger. With the saliva of some of us, this is the saliva that was on the finger, healing our sick by the permission of our Lord. Very simple phrase, but that was something he would do as a ruqya. So you could do it yourself. If you're sick, someone else is sick, if you want to do the ruqya, you simply touch your finger over your tongue and get saliva place it on the earth, then place that on the part and say, Bismillahi turbatu ardina bi riqati ba'dina yushfa saqimuna bi'idhni rabbina. 
And that dua is from the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's in Bukhari. Yeah. Um, I don't remember which which kitab in Bukhari or the bab, but if you look up Ruqya, Dua, Sahih Bukhari, you'll probably find it if you do a quick Google search. It's a very... Can you send us in the, in the group? I can send it in the group too, yeah. What were you saying? Which one? You mean the one you read the three quls? I don't know if we've covered the Bab of Ruqya yet, but sometimes those hadith are repeated across different abwab. So maybe we did. Yeah, I don't think we covered this one. But we're at Hadith 824, so maybe we did. It's been a while. So he says when the communities within the Arabs would find that the water of their wells was bitter, they would say, O Messenger of Allah, the water of our well is bitter. He would reply by saying, bring me a glass of water. He would then take some of it in his mouth and rinse it therein and place it back in the glass and say, place this glass in your well. It will become sweet by the order of the one who says to a thing, kun fayakun bi, and it is. This was not a rare occurrence, he says. The books of Sirah are filled with many such narrations regarding the saliva of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa reaching the water. And indeed, there are numerous narrations of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa coming into contact with water that is returned into the well, which caused it to be sweeter. And if you go to Medina, there's, there's actually two locations that are readily identifiable you can go to and you can access that water. The wells are still there. The, the one place, I can't remember the exact name, it's not on any official uh, tour. You can't find it by going with an official tour guide, but you just have to know where it's at. It's a little bit outside of Medina, closer to Quba, and there, there's a factory. I don't know what they make, but it's a factory, you know, and it's mostly Pakistanis working there. And behind the factory, is uh, a masjid slash musalla that was built in Medina by the earliest Muslims of Medina before the Hijrah. And I, I want to say it's about, it's a, probably about half the size of this social hall and it's constructed of stone. And it's not a full building with a roof, it just the walls go up to maybe four feet, three feet in places. And of course, it's decayed over time, but you can, the outline is still there. The original bricks are still there. And inside, there's no carpeting because there's no roof. Uh, inside are just some of these reed mats and those plastic mats that people use. And the workers in that factory, they go there for salat. This was uh, a place, a musalla, in which the Prophet ﷺ prayed before he arrived in Medina proper. And right outside of that musalla, just a few feet away, is a small well. And the well still stands today. And that well was used by the Prophet ﷺ. He made dua there. His saliva mixed with that water. And the water that comes from that well is still used today to irrigate the area around it. Because around that musalla, behind this factory, are these date trees and this ajwa dates. But these ajwa dates are better tasting than the ajwa dates uh, outside of it in other parts of Medina. And if you go there, you can buy them, but they're almost twice as much as the regular ajwa dates. You, you buy them right there, yeah. 
and you can drink the water if you reach in. Sometimes they don't have the rope, right? Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. But if I have to, I have, yeah, I have to. I, I I can't remember the exact name, but I can get it. I can get it. Yeah, this was an actual well, and. Was it was it enclosed with a gate? It was like yeah, the, it was all covered. But you could see here, but it was like a, a metal gate around the well. It was green. Were you able to get water from it? There was water. It was right next to it, so we, everybody was like going for this. Mm. this there's a few. There's a few like that. Uh, there's this one. I have to get the name for you. Uh, there's another one. I can't remember the exact area, unfortunately, because it was a few years ago. But this one also, the same thing. And there's a large gate enclosed around it. You can't get into the well. Uh, but what people do, uh, down the road from where that well is located, there's a sporting goods store. And people will go to the sporting goods store and buy fishing poles and then they get the string and they tie cups to the end and they just reach into the gate and just kind of throw it in to get it to go inside. They lower it and then slowly pull it up to get the water. And no one does anything. It's fine. No one's going to stop you. It's just they don't, it's locked. Otherwise, that's the, that's the only way you can get it. So there's a few like this, for sure. Um, in the Sira class, because we're covering the Sira, we're at this stage of the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, something similar happened where they ran out of water because it was a small pond there at Hudaybiyah, uh, outside of Mecca, and they ran out of water, and the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't use his saliva at that time, but he used an arrow. He said, give me an arrow. He took the arrow, and then he s stuck it into the ground, and then the area where the water was before started, started to come up more. So there's lots of examples like this in the seerah of uh, miraculous things happening. And he says the books of Sirah are filled with many such narrations. Now he says here, this is a secret which only the originator, subhanahu wa ta'ala, or azza wa jal, knows. I mean, what's the reality behind that? It's Allah ta'ala who creates this barakah. He says this saliva was also a cure for all types of illnesses whether it was an illness of the eye, stomach, skin, or any illness that could affect a person. For he وسلم, said, the leftover water of a believer is a cure, shifa. Then what is the case regarding his leftover water? Surely it is an absolute cure. So this, uh, we know the word for, we know the word wudu. Wudu as in what we do to prepare for salat, to remove the major and minor impurities. So wudu is the action of washing for prayer and lifting that state of hadith. The leftover water from wudu is called wadu with fatha. So you have wudu with dhamma, wudu and wadu. Wudu and wadu, of course, come from the same root word. One with dhamma, one with fatha. They both come from the word wada'ah. And wada'ah in Arabic means something that is bright and luminous. So when we translate wudu into English, what is the translation people use? Ablution. It's a very strange word, isn't it? Ablution. Who uses that? Who uses the word ablution? Imagine you go to someone at work and say, excuse me, I have to go make ablutions. Only Muslims, Only Muslims use that word. <laughs> so there's so many words in the English language that really only Muslims use them anymore. Yeah, old, English. old English words. But ablution is not the best translation for wudu. Because ablution does not give you the meaning of wada'ah, uh, of luminous, luminosity and brightness. But there is a word in English that 
gives that meaning, and it's another old English word. It's called lustration. Lustration from luster. You know the luster, the luster brightness, right? So wudu is literally, literally lustration. And the reason why it's called lustration, or the reason why wudu is called wudu, is because wada'a, brightness, and the limbs that are washed in the wudu will shine brightly on the Day of Judgment. It's one of the ways the Prophet ﷺ recognizes his ummah, which is a great lesson for those who don't pray. Because if you don't pray, then chances are you're not making wudu. So if you're not making wudu and you're not praying, then by what, what physical sign will you have on the Day of Judgment that enables you to stand out as being from the ummah of Rasulullah So it's from wada'a. So what he's saying here is the, uh, what he calls the leftover water of the believer is a cure. That's the wadu, the leftover water. And this is uh, a narration that mentions that it's a kind of shifa. Now, what he's, the point he's making is that if the wadu of the believer can contain shifa, what about the wadu of the purest of the pure? Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's a shifa min babi awla, even more so. After this, he goes into a narration. Now, I, I looked for this narration, and I, I didn't spend a lot of time looking for it, but... I looked in the typical books where it might be found, but I couldn't locate it, so I need to spend more time. Uh, it's, a, it's likely a, a weak narration, because there's others like it that I know of that are weak. In the Sira works, the, what we're talking, Ibn Hisham, or before him, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, and then the later collections, uh, such as uh, Imam uh, Burhanuddin al-Halabi, Asirat al-Halabiyya, or al-Mawahib al-Laduniyya, they have in the beginning part of the seerah what we would call a pre-seerah story, which is the story of the Arabs and the genealogies and the tribes and the spread of the, or Ibrahim alayhi salam and Ismail, and then how the way of Ibrahim deviated over time, and then it tells the story of the prognostications or the signs that appeared uh, heralding the imminent arrival of this final prophet. And after that, it tells the story of Abdullah and Amina and the conception of the Prophet and then the signs that accompanied her pregnancy and then the signs that were there shortly before the birth, during the childbirth itself, and after the birth, right, immediately after. There's so many narrations like this. And within those narrations, there are a few that talk about uh, certain signs in the horizons. And some of the scholars would call these irhasat. They're miracles, miraculous events that uh, presage the imminent arrival of the Prophet Sallallahu um, We talked about that in the Aqidah class. You know, these, these are miracles that come before, the, before being tasked with Nubuwa, such as the clouds hovering over him as a young man traveling to Sham, right? That's one of them. So let's read this narration, then we'll just unpack it a little bit. This is a narration like those. Um, it is most likely weak because there are similar narrations to it that are weak, but they're in the books. He says, uh, This existed in previous scriptures when the people of the book became aware of the approach of the Prophet's birth. وسلم, many of them came to the Arabian Peninsula, some of them settled in Medina, others stayed in Mecca. There were two monks among them. On the night of the Prophet's birth, they believed, according to their book, that a gold star would appear as a sign, and that this night would be known as the night of the Muhammadan presence, meaning the birth of the final Prophet. 
Many people witnessed this glad tiding, including Muqawqas, who was the Coptic ruler, and Qaisar of the Byzantines, who found the star and woke up distressed the following morning. What is wrong? His people asked. He replied, I saw the star of Ahmed last night. And by the way, these narrations, despite their weakness, they almost all come through Ka'b al-Ahbar, who was a Jewish man who converted to Islam. And he had a lot of knowledge of different Christian and Jewish lore. And a lot of that made its way into the hadith collections and tafsir. Um, this is most likely coming through him. So when he says Ahmad, he's talking about the word meaning Ahmad in their language, in their time. You know, this final prophet. Uh, I saw the star of Ahmed last night. A large star manifested. It was red in color. It filled all corners of the creation and it eclipsed all the other smaller stars. When the monk residing near Mecca saw this star, he sent a messenger with an announcement. O people of Mecca, he who has given birth to a child on this night, let them bring it here. Sayyidina Abdul Muttalib went to him, and when he saw him and recognized his attributes, he said to him, Be his father. Sayyidina Abdul Muttalib asked, Father, to whom? The monk replied, To the child who has been sent by Allah to seal messengers. So when he says father, it means paternal line, right? Because in Arabic you have ab which can mean father, can mean uncle, paternal line, uh, grandfather even. And then, you know, walid would be more like the actual biological father. Uh, four days later, and here's the shahid to the chapter, four days later, the eye of our master, the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was afflicted. Uh, and what it means is there's a type of ailment that happens in Arabia, it happens in desert climates anywhere. And in, in Arabic, they call it ramad. It's basically inflammation of the eye due to microscopic sand particles getting in there. It's very common uh, in desert environments. So the custom of the people of Mecca was that when one's eye was afflicted, they would go to a monk. So they took the Prophet wasallam to him and he said, his medicine is with him. They asked, and how is that? He replied, take his saliva and place it in his eye. And he take the saliva from the mouth, place it in the eye. And they did that and he was cured. So this is the narration. Now, without going too deep into it, because this is, uh, it, we would classify this as a da'if narration. So it, it's in the books and you derive from it what you will. What we do know is that there's very interesting planetary coincidences, if you will, although there's no real coincidence. There's interesting planetary things that happened in different times in history. So you have the Uranus-Neptune conjunction when the two planets are lined up. And, you know, in the pre-modern world, people track these things, right? They, because they're very observant of the position of the stars and the movement of the planets. And when Uranus and Neptune uh, align, they call that the Uranus-Neptune conjunction. This has occurred in different periods of history. It is recorded to have occurred around the time of the birth of Prophet Isa salam and Prophet Yahya salam. It also occurred during the month of Rabi' al-Awwal in the year of the elephant, yeah, the, the month of the, the Prophet's birth. And it also, it, then it happened again uh, in the period of the Hijrah, right around the time of the Hijrah. And you know, take it for what it is, right? We don't, we're not talking about astrology or predicting the future. We're just talking about interesting uh, coincidences or conjunctions between different events. That's noted in the books of Sirah and something they noticed. So we have similar things like that. Uh, 
The shahid or the relevant part of this narration is the part of using the saliva to heal his eye when it had the ramad, that, that inflammation. Now moving to a sahih narration, he says, when they sought victory over the citadel of Khaybar, the, you know, the citadel, Qala'a, the Prophet wasallam and the Muslims remained for two days and no one can gain entry. In the evening, the Prophet ﷺ said to them, Tomorrow I will give the raya, the battle flag standard, to a man whom Allah and his messenger love, and who loves Allah and his messenger. You, know, you can imagine being among them and hearing this from him. You have to wait until the next day to see who's going to get the battle flag. Anybody would want to have that honor, so they're wondering who this is going to be. They all went to sleep that night, hoping for that honor, for this was a great rank. So much that Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, I've never desired leadership except on this one day. Because the, the, the ideal is you don't seek after leadership. But if you get leadership, having heard that, sure, I, you know, seek after it. He says, in the morning, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, asked, Where is Ali? The people replied that he's, he had an ailment in his eye. He was inside of his tent. He's staying out of the outdoors because he had this ramad, this eye inflammation. The Prophet asked for him to be brought to him. When they brought him, he was suffering from a severe ailment. So the Prophet ﷺ took from his saliva and placed it in the eye of Imam Ali and then gave him the standard and said to him, Allah will grant victory through you. It did not take three days nor three attempts, but it healed immediately. And this is, a, this is in Sahih Bukhari. So he had the eye ailment, he receives the battle flag, and he's identified in front of those hundreds of soldiers, this is a man whom Allah and His Messenger love, and who love, loves Allah and His Messenger. He gets the saliva placed in his eye, and it heals up immediately. And he says here, how many illnesses have been cured by the touch of his palm, and how many will there be till the Day of Judgment? For this is not limited to his time. So this is the khasais of the saliva. He adds that this was also used to purify breath. It has been related that a woman once sent her four daughters to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to perfume their mouths with his saliva. They went to the Messenger وسلم, while he was eating qadid. Uh, qadid is like beef jerky or camel jerky. It's dried meat. He gave one of them a piece of meat which he had placed in his mouth, and told her to share it with the others. They had the purest and most fragrant mouths from the women of Medina. So these young ladies, they want to have uh, fragrant breath, and they sought that. And because he chewed from the qadid and it has some of his saliva in it, he gave it to her and she distributed it and ate it. And they had, as he said, the most fragrant mouths from the women of Medina. So another instance. Likewise, when Sayyida Fatima السلام, was busy, she would take Imam Hassan and Hussein and leave them in the presence of the Prophet وسلم, when they were young. Whenever they became hungry, the Prophet وسلم, would give them his tongue to suck upon. They were then satiated by the command of Allah. This was not a rare occurrence, it happened many times. So this is the end of the section on the saliva. Now this last narration I want to comment on a little bit because you, you have this concept that I've spoken about a few times, your cognitive frames or your frame of reference. If a person is steeped in materialism, is against religion, antagonistic towards Muslims, and they watch Muslims in sajda, from their vantage point, they might say, 
if asked, what are these people doing? They say, oh, they're putting their behinds in the air. They're in sajda. They're putting their behinds in the air. From their vantage point, that's what they see. They don't see that it's actually sajda, prostrating to Allah Ta'ala. So oftentimes people read narrations and they're reading them through their own frame of reference. And people sometimes have, if they don't have perverted minds, their minds are only associating with things that are unbecoming. So when they read the narration, they get the wrong idea. Let's read it again. Whenever they became hungry, the Prophet ﷺ would give them his tongue to suck upon. Someone reads that phrase, what are they going to think? They're going to think, what is this? Right? So how do you explain it? Okay, you know infants. Infants have this instinct to suckle from the breast. And when they're put to the breast, they latch on. If you put the child in the infancy stage, when they're hungry, even towards your nose, they'll latch onto your nose, right? It's their instinct. So this narration is describing a time when they were lacking food. So Sayyidah Fatima, alayhi salam, she is breastfeeding, but she's also, she doesn't have a lot of food. So she's tending to certain household duties and chores, and the, the, the young Hassan and Hussein are with him. So the giving of the tongue is not what people would think. The giving of the tongue would be the equivalent of sticking the tip out like this to suckle upon just in that moment as their instinct would be to suckle. And it's momentarily, and just from the barakah of the saliva being transmitted, then the hunger goes away. That's really it. In addition to that, there's also other things, right? There's the, the, the saliva mixing with their saliva, it's more than just being full, right? They, you know, they're receiving from the Prophet So that's how you would explain it. No, it's a sound hadith. Yeah, it's sound. This is the problem is people, because people are, are they, they, they read it through the lenses of the modern mind. They immediately jump to the worst possible thought. That's, that's not the case. So that's the end of this section. Now he concludes by mentioning some poetry. He says, some scholars compose poetry on the unique attributes of the Prophet ﷺ, emphasizing his exalted rank among all others. Uh, there's more than 10. There's 10 things here, but there's more than 10. But this is a summary. He's, it says, Our Prophet ﷺ was distinguished with 10 attributes. He never emitted emissions and ihtilab. Some of these we'll cover. And he did not have a shadow. We talked about that. The earth would swallow what would emerge from him. And the fadalat. And relieving himself. And the fly was forbidden to land on him. His eyes would sleep, but not his heart. Behind him he would see, just as in front. We talked about those. He would never yawn, and that was the seventh. We'll talk about that in the next section. He was born makhtun, circumcised, which is that which follows. Animals knew him when he rode them, that's coming. They would rush to him and would not flee. His sitting would be higher than the sitting of others. Allah's blessings upon him in the morning and the eve. So just a short basic summary of some of the khasais. All right. So in our previous class, we talked about the uniqueness of the noble blood of the Prophet ﷺ. And we spoke about the hadith 
regarding his hijama and Abdullah bin Zubair. And I made a comment. I said, this is from his khasais, him and him alone. If you were to do this to anybody else, that would be gross. Right? So we have to be very careful with these narrations. And I don't think it's always wise to share them to people who don't have proper foundations of Iman because you don't want them to hear something that their minds don't comprehend and they respond in a way that is disrespectful and destructive to their own Iman. So you have to be careful here. So in a public setting, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily read these narrations. You understand? The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, حَدِّثُ النَّاسِ بِقَدْرِ عُقُولِهِمْ أَتُرِيدُونَ أَنْ يُكَذَّبَ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ He says, speak to the people at the level of their intellects. Do you want for, for Allah and His messenger, messenger to be denied? And another narration says, never do you speak about something that goes over the heads of others that their minds cannot grasp except that it becomes a fitna for them. So be careful. So we talked about the noble blood. The, the next section is similar to that, uh, if not more. And this is the, title, the section he titles, Healing Through His Past Water. That's a euphemism for bowl. What is bowl? Urine. And he narrates here, uh, Hassan ibn Sufyan has related in his Musnad, Abu Ya'la, Al-Hakim, and Daraqutni, Abu Nu'im, have all related on the authority of Um Ayman radiallahu anha, who said, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam got up at night and passed water in a pan. They didn't have toilets back then. The only toilets were the khala outdoors. Late at night, you're not going to do that. Uh, even until recent history, that was the norm even in the society. Bedpans, they called them. Uh, there's some other names for it as well. She says, I also got up and was feeling thirsty, so I drank what was in that pan. She didn't know what was in it. When the morning came, I told him about what I had done. He laughed and said, you will never suffer from pain in your stomach after this day. Abdul Razak Sanani relates on the authority of Ibn uh, Juraij, here it says Jadij, it's Juraij, who said, I was informed that the Prophet would pass water in a pan made of earth, a clay pot, clay pot, which he would then place under his bed. Once he took that vessel out and found there to be nothing inside, so he asked his servant Baraka who served Um Habiba radiallahu anhun and came with her from Abyssinia. Where is the water that was in this pan, this clay container? She replied, I drank it. The Prophet sallallahu said, Good health to you, ya Um Yusuf. Her kunya was Um Yusuf and she never became ill at all until her final illness which she died upon. So these are two narrations I want to share with you because I have another work here that collects these narrations. This is from Baraka, the servant of Um Habiba. Uh, so the, narr the narration that I have in this work mentions the one from Abdul Razak Sanani from Ibn Juraij. Uh, mentions the same narration. This is also recorded by Abu Dawood and An Nasai and Imam Al Suyuti mentions that it was cited by Al-Hafidh ibn Abdul Bar in an isti'ab and we have the narration from Um Ayman that we just cited as well also recorded by uh, Imam Al-Tabarani uh, and we read that narration uh, so Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar al-Asqalani he mentions that these were two separate incidents there's the incident of Um Ayman and the incident of Baraka, who was this servant. So you have two people here. So Baraka, the servant of Um Habiba, and you have Um Ayman, two incidents where this happened, according to Ibn Hajar. And we have another narration from Tabarani, from Hakima bint Umayyah, 
from her mother who mentions a similar incident happening and this has a sound chain recorded by Imam Ahmad and others. So the basis for this, for the hadith of Abdullah bin Zubair and the hadith of Um Ayman and uh, Baraka, the basis is that all of the fadalat of the Prophet are ritually pure, bahir. Okay? So we know that blood and urine have a legal status in Sharia. They're considered ritually impure, najasa. Right? But in the books of fiqh, even the books that, these are books written hundreds of years after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, the larger collections mention this point, that the only exception are the fadalat of the Prophet ﷺ. There's no legal consequence for us in knowing that because he's passed away. So that ruling doesn't apply anymore in the sense that we won't be presented with it. But that is mentioned in the books of fiqh. So I give you the statement of Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, the great Shafi'i Imam. He mentions in his Sharh al-Muhadhab, uh, al-Majmu'ah, he says, uh, those scholars who were of the opinion that both his blood and urine were ritually pure inferred such from the two well-known hadith. One, that Abu Tayba, the cupper once cupped him and drank his blood and he did not criticize him for that and to the report that the woman once drank his urine and he did not censure her either the hadith of Abu Tayba is weak and the hadith about the drinking of the urine is authentic reported by Daraqutni the narration from Abdullah bin Zubair is authentic so Imam al-Nawi goes on to say he says, he's answering this question, okay, if the blood and the urine is tahir, ritually speaking, from the Prophet ﷺ, why did he avoid it? You know, why is there istinja? Why is there avoidance of urine? These things. So he's answering that question. He responds by saying that it was based on one of istihbab recommendation for the, in particular to the Prophet ﷺ. So then, i give you another quote that contextualizes all of this. There's a great uh, scholar, uh, Imam al-Mawardi, uh, Marwardi is a Shafi'i scholar. He says, uh, as for the hair of the Prophet wasallam, stating that the correct view is to assert that it is pure seems to allude to some view opposite of that, right? You understand the language of the fuqaha, they sometimes, they say it this way, or they say, you know, the most preponderant or strongest view of the two views is this or that. So he says, to say that uh, the strongest view is that the hair of the Prophet ﷺ, the cut hair is tahir. To say that that's the strongest view implies that there's some second view that says it's not pure. That's what he's getting at. He says it seems to allude that there's some opposite view. And he says, uh, <laughs> and he, and he, You know, they say, one view says tahir, one view says not tahir. He says, A'udhu billahi min hadhal wajh. I seek refuge from that so-called second view. He said, some have crossed the line and almost left the fold of Islam when one of them said that concerning the purity of the hair of the Prophet wasallam, there's two views. He said, Hashadillah, how far removed is the hair of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, from that? How could someone say this when it's been stated that even his fadalat are pure, meaning al-bawl, these things, not to mention his noble hair. So the soundest view 
uh, is only one view, which is that the fadalat are all tahir. Now, you understand that because everything about him is pure and from him is pure, that this is easy to say. But these things are particular to him and to him alone. If anyone says, oh, you know, I'm a great, I'm a great sheikh, you know, I'm really pure, I'm a great wali, therefore, here you go. No, sharia stands over everyone. And the ruling in sharia is that for everyone, those things, those fadalat are najisa. They are ritually impure. And the only exception is for the Prophet Sallallahu And these were very, there were very few occasions where this happened and it happened uh, literally by accident. It wasn't something they're purposely seeking out. It was by accident. But they didn't do anything improper. And it's tahir. And it even was a means of shifa for them. As in the hadith mentions here, uh, regarding uh, Um Ayman, she never got sick after that, except for the very last sickness that came upon her right before she passed away. So we don't, you know, we don't shy from these narrations, but at the same time, you understand the minds of people, and you don't want to say something that people don't grasp, and it causes them to have, you know, weird ideas, and they may say something that's problematic. So. That's that. Uh, anyone trying to use these hadith for other than what they communicate? Yeah, that's another story. Uh, any questions on that before I move on? Be clear. It's because the principle is that everything from him, sallallahu alayhi wa is tahir. He is tahir mutahar, sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. So, I think... I think I'm probably going to I think I'll probably end here because the next few sections they don't require a lot of detail but it'll go take us way over the time to finish them so we'll, we'll finish them in the next section that mean the next class uh, and then we'll go to the next chapter which is a very long chapter but it's very simple as well because it's simply a collection of narrations uh, hadith which show the love that trees and stones and animals and things in nature had for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's a very beautiful chapter and it's virtually all hadith, all sound hadith as well. And after we finish that, that may take, I, I don't know how long that will take. It's, it's, we might finish it in one section because it's really just a hadith after a hadith. After that comes the next section of the book, part two, which is all about the names of the Prophet So that's a very beautiful section. It will take us a while to get through.